This whole idea of revolution may raise some questions for some of you. Revolution, really, that's what we're going to talk about. What, what exactly are we revolting against? Is this really the right word? Uh, revolution, right? What, what is, what's the end game here? What's the plan? What is God doing? What does he expect of me? Well, a couple weeks ago, I, uh, I kicked off the, the new year by saying that uh, if we're going to win in 2015, we have to understand three things. One, we have to understand our assignment. Secondly, we have to understand uh, our setting. And I talked about exile versus exodus. And then finally, I said we also have to understand that God is going to win in the end and that 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 certainty needs to pervade how we move through life and what we do. Well, all of that is is, um, sort of underridden by this understanding that Jesus left heaven to come to earth in order to accomplish something, that he had an objective, that there was an agenda, and uh, that we, we get invited in to that objective. Uh, so, so there are a variety of ways that we can talk about this, what it is that God wants to do. Almost all of them are just way too small. I occasionally hear people say things like, well, God wants me to be nice, right? God wants me to tell the truth. God wants me not to use so many bad words. And I say, well, yeah, okay, yes, technically you're right, but (laughs) that's not ultimately what God is trying to do. Jesus didn't show up here to tell us to be nice and to not use bad language. Right? So a lot of companies, most companies, have employee manuals. And these employee manuals are filled with regulations and HR policies and all kinds of other things. Sort of rules of the road. But the, the employee manual is not leading us to the mission of the organization. Right? The mission, what is ultimately trying to be accomplished, is a whole lot bigger than these rules and regulations that are in place. And so I would say the same thing uh, God is inviting us to be part of something that is really, really big. And th- there's, there's lots of ways we can break this out. There's aspects of this. We can say that Jesus came in order to teach. Jesus came in order to reveal the Father. Jesus came in order to set an example. Jesus came in order to fulfill the law. Jesus ultimately came in order to die in our place that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. When we look at the New Testament, what we see is that this always gets packaged under the idea of the kingdom of God. That this is the big sort of umbrella concept that Christ came to bring the kingdom. And Luke chapter 9 is an important passage in that uh, that whole plan. And so we're going we're gonna to go there. Lots of things happen in Luke 9. As we begin back in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we're going we're gonna to turn there and launch from there. But before we do, let me take just a couple minutes and, and remind you, if you were here, or tell you if you weren't, um, what happens in Luke chapters 1 through 8. Just give you a quick flyover, refresher course, or an overview. So, The Gospel of Luke is one of four accounts of the life of Christ that we find in the New Testament. This one was written by Luke, 
who was a medical doctor, an amateur historian, and the travel companion for the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul is the, the zealous uh, Jew persecuting Christians until he's struck down by God, meets Christ, and becomes the, the Apostle Paul, and the first, truly, the first missionary. Well, Luke wrote two books for a man by the name of Theophilus. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the Book of Acts. And the Book of Acts tells us what happens in the first 30 years of the church. So after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he has commissioned a church. And, and the, the book of Acts tells us what happens in those first three decades. Luke writes both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he tells us in the introduction that he's writing them for a man by the name of Theophilus who we can tell by his name, that he's a Greek, and it, it appears for a variety of other reasons that he's, a, he's a, an official in the Roman government. And I went so far as to argue uh, that we can say more than that about Theophilus. It sure appears as though he is either a Christ follower or very close. And I even went out on a limb and said, I'm among those who believe that Theophilus is likely the guy who funded Luke, for the year, two years that he needed in order to travel around and do the research in order to write the Gospel of Luke. Luke claims, unlike Matthew, Mark, and John, to give us an orderly account, a chronological account. And and it's clear from what Luke tells us that he's he's gone to these places, he's interviewed eyewitnesses, he's pulling together this, this report. So, he, and likely he did this at about 63 is when we figure he was done with this. We know that, the, that uh, the book of Acts was written after the Gospel of Luke, and that the book of Acts ends with Paul and Peter still alive, and the temple has not fallen. So we know that it's ended probably 65, 66. So if you back up, then it means the, the Gospel of Luke is probably written in the early 60s, um, not 1960s, just the early 60s. Um, So, for what it's worth, Luke's gospel differs from uh, Matthew, Mark, and John's in a few ways. First of all, uh, it was written by a Gentile for Gentiles. Luke is the only Gentile who writes any of the books uh, of the Bible, and he's writing for a Gentile audience. Matthew is a Jew who writes for Jews, and that's why Matthew's gospel opens with a chronology a genealogy, excuse me, because that genealogy ties his, it, it, it shows how Jesus comes out of the Old Testament. So Matthew's very concerned to make that connection for his Jewish readers. Mark, who we believe wrote first, it's the shortest gospel, Mark appears to be writing for the Romans, and John clearly is writing for Greeks. And so he opens with this big, heady Greek philosophy. He uses this term that the Greek philosophers had been playing around with for some time, logos. But he reframes it, and and he uses it of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's writing for the Greeks. Luke is writing for Gentiles. And um, and Luke's gospel opens with uh, an angel appearing to to Zechariah, who will become John the Baptist's father. There had been 400 years of silence that is broken 
by this angel. 400 years where uh, there's sort of radio silence from heaven. And then uh, this angel appears to Zechariah, who's an, an old priest in a small town. who's come to the temple, is praying. And, the, and this angel says, God has heard your prayers. He's going to answer them. Your wife is going to give birth to a son. And this son is, in essence, he says, he's going to fulfill the role of Elijah. So, 400 years earlier, the last page of the Old Testament, the last chapter of the last book, the book of Malachi, the last prophecy that was made said, the next thing that will happen is that Elijah will return. Okay? So this is why, if you've been, been to a Jewish Passover Seder, one, of the, one part of the Seder, what happens is that they ask the youngest child to get up and go to the door and to look out to see whether or not Elijah has returned. Because the next thing to happen in prophetic history is going to be the return of Elijah. He's the greatest prophet. Well, John the Baptist comes, in essence, symbolically as Elijah, as this great prophet to prepare, to speak prophetically, and to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. So, um, the angel says to, to Zechariah, your wife is going to give birth to John the Baptist. That's how Luke's gospel opens. Then in chapter 1, the rest of chapter 1, the same angel goes to Mary and says, you have found favor with God. You know, you're you're uh, going to give birth to the Messiah. Then Luke chapter 2 is the Christmas chapter, right? This is Mary and Joseph. They go to Bethlehem. She has the baby in a stable. Uh, you know, there's the shepherds come. The angels are there, star in the sky. So we get, we get that in Luke chapter 2. And then in Luke chapter 3, we shift back to John the Baptist. And we track him a little bit. He becomes quite the rock star. Everybody's listening to him. And, um, and Luke chapter 3 also gives us uh, a bit of the genealogy of Jesus. And it differs from Matthew's genealogy because Matthew is tracking uh, Christ's birth through Joseph's bloodline, and Mary, or Luke is going to track Matthew's bloodline through Mary. Um, and it's just worth pausing here for a second to note. The Bible never says, a long time ago in a faraway land, these things happened. It's always trying to very clearly ground things geographically and, and historically. It's trying to put it in the context of time. The, the New Testament makes historical claims, right? Not spiritual claims, not magical claims, not moral claims. It is fundamentally reporting news that God showed up on earth. And, and one of the things that we look at in Alpha is specifically, do we have good reason to believe that a person named Jesus showed up? Right? That, that a rabbi suddenly uh, sort of ignites everything, and that he teaches with an authority that nobody has, and that he performs miracles, and that he, he, everybody believes he's come back from the dead after he's crucified. Is there good reason to believe this? Can we trust the New Testament? Are there extra-testamental books? Is there, is there anything outside of the New Testament that, that is historically verifiable that we should actually believe this stuff? So if you have those kinds of questions, or again, if you know people who struggle with those kinds of questions, I want to encourage you uh, to come to Alpha. 
So, um, Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, and then Christ's genealogy. Luke chapter 4 opens with Jesus is baptized, and then he heads out into the desert to pray and to prepare for the mission that is in front of him. And it's during this time that he will be tempted by Satan. And then he's going to come out of the desert and immediately begin his work as a rabbi. He's 30 years old, uh, and he begins traveling around, teaching and preaching, and uh, quickly he's got a following, right? Lots of people are following Jesus on Twitter. They're downloading all of his podcasts. So he's a, he becomes big stuff very early on. And Luke 4 records the sermon that he preaches when he goes back home to Nazareth, okay? So he's, the, he's already sort of made it. He's a celebrity. Everybody's talking about him. And he comes home uh, to preach. And I'm reading about uh, that event in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse uh, 16. It says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath, uh, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it he found the place where it was written. And this is quoting out of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, the release, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what Isaiah wrote about a thousand years earlier in this messianic passage, in this promise about the one who was coming, it's been fulfilled in your presence. I am the one Isaiah was writing about. This is shocking. The people are uh, caught off guard, and, uh, and it doesn't go over well, in part because Jesus will not do the miracles that he's been doing other places, uh, in part because, you know, they're just like, whoa, we grew up with you, and now you're making these claims. And so they actually um, make a move to try and kill him, and I've been to the place uh, outside of Nazareth where supposedly they, they took Jesus to throw him off the rocks uh, to his death. Well, Jesus is obviously not thrown off of the rocks to his death. He, he sort of escapes that. He walks out from among them. And then the rest of Luke chapter 4, all the way through Luke chapter 8, uh, give us uh, a, a series of events in which Christ sort of systematically performs a number of miracles that are going to make it clear that he's more than just a rabbi. If you were here, I called that little sub-series. We've divided Luke up into a lots of smaller series. So that series was called Amazed, because I said Jesus was amazing them. Right? In this, if you just take each individual miracle, you know, you don't quite get it. But, but when you step back and you see, okay, he heals the sick, he raises the dead, he calms the storm, right? He's showing his power over evil, his power over sin, his power over death, his power over nature. He's making it clear that he is more than just another rabbi. And he does this, by the way, 
uh, all the miracles that he does are, are also acts of compassion and kindness. Right? He's not showing off. It's not like he says, uh, hey, watch me bend this spoon. Or uh, pick a card, any card, and uh, don't let me see it, and I'll tell you what it is. Right? No, he's, he's doing miracles that are congruent with who he is and what his mission is. But in that series, it becomes obvious that, uh, that Jesus is more than, than anyone expected. So now we come to uh, Luke chapter 9, and we enter this new series called uh, Revolution. And uh, what happens here in Luke 9 is we've got a little turning point. And Jesus is about to set in motion uh, a movement that is going to uh, far outlast his brief stay in the Middle East. Right? He, is going to, he is going to commission uh, others to speak and to serve in his name. And, um, and, and this is where we get to this idea of, of a revolution, because that's essentially what he, what he launches. And, you know, there's lots of revolutions, and you saw the, the video, and all kinds of you know, snapshots of things that have happened uh, in the past. Most revolutions are sort of fueled by young uh, ideologues, and uh, they, they promise a lot, and they deliver uh, significantly less than they promise. And uh, often they make things worse. Seldom do they make things better. What Jesus launches is going to be qualitatively different and, qualitative and quantitatively different from what anyone else does. First of all, it's going to be a revolution based on love and grace and mercy. It's going to be a revolution in which if you want to be big, you have to be small. If you want to be first, you have to be last. You don't get served, you serve. It's a very upside-down ethic. Secondly, the revolution that Jesus launches is going to be bigger and better than any other Revolution. What the, the organization that Jesus starts is going to be bigger and broader and better than what anyone else starts. Now, I, um, in addition to apologizing with some frequency for my own mistakes and misstatements and sin and whatever, in order to the apologies, in addition to the apologies that I have to make for my own foibles. As a pastor, I, with some frequency, end up apologizing for the church to people. I did it last week. You have to say to somebody, I'm sorry, you, you expected better of us, and we let you down. And, uh, you know, um, the truth is, we don't do a great job of incarnating what Jesus taught and modeled. And so I, I with some frequency, end up having to say, yeah, we blew it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing everything that we could be doing or should be doing. And so, yes, that's true. However, from time to time, it's worth reminding ourselves of how many things the church over 2,000 years has done right and to remind ourselves that uh, what Jesus launched is now not just the oldest, but it is the largest and the most geographic and ethnically diverse 
organization on the planet. Right? Forget Henry Ford and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. Forget Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. If you want to look at somebody who launched something that continues to roll forward 2,000 years later, right? You look at Jesus. In addition to all the unbelievable things that he did, he did this. And the church, church is not growing in the West. It's not growing in the United States very, it's, it's plateaued. And, and in Europe, it's in decline. But outside of those two areas, uh, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, former Soviet bloc uh, countries, the church is, continues to grow rapidly. As a matter of fact, I mean, you wouldn't know it from the news, but Christianity grows, uh, it out, outpaces the growth of Islam. And so Christianity continues to be the fastest growing uh, worldview, ethic, religion in the world. And Jesus started this. And it's, I mean, it's impressive. This alone is impressive. I started, in the late 80s, I started an organization for college pastors. It's called the Ivy Jungle Network. And it was to, to sort of minister and serve to those who serve uh, collegians. And so church-based campus pastors, parachurch staff like InterVarsity Crusade, Navigators FCA, and then also college and university spiritual life staff, so deans of chapels and, you know, all those kinds of things. And over, over time, it grew to, there'd be about 4,000 people that were in this network. And we had conferences and a magazine and forums and, yeah, all that stuff. And it, it just grew and it grew and it grew, and then, um, and then it stopped. And then it went away. <laughs> so I'm just struck. And I was struck by this before with my consulting work, because a lot of times I was called into family businesses that were sort of second and third generation, and they were just coming undone, right? What had been put in place by a founder and had lasted throughout the course of his or her lifetime was now sort of spinning out of control, second generation or third generation. It's really hard to get something that's going to keep going uh, for 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, right? Jesus set in motion something that is still going and growing 2,000 years later. So there is a revolution, and we are expected to be uh, participating members in that revolution. So what does that mean? I mean, are we, I don't know, supposed to put on fatigues and look like Fidel Castro? Um, What exactly does it mean to be a revolutionary in this sense? Well, Stay with me. Over the course of the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at um, the kinds of things that Jesus is doing. He is going to be, uh, just in the context of the Gospel of Luke, he's going to be in Galilee for this period of time. And, and, and we're going to start to get into some of the teaching that Jesus is doing. So the red letters are going to begin to appear a little bit more frequently in your red letter Bible. But, but uh, there's a number of things that are going to happen uh, in, in Galilee. And then, eventually, Jesus is going to turn and begin his march to Jerusalem. And this will be a long march, and he does a lot of teaching. There's big par- sections on the parables and other things, so we'll have a small series on that. And then, then we'll get into the final sort of series, which will be on the last week of Christ's life, which uh, 
covers a third of the Gospel of Luke. So one of the reasons that we don't refer to the Gospels as biographies is because they're not very good as biographies. A biography is supposed to give us a lot more information over the whole life. And the Gospels are specifically written. They tell us, right? I'm writing this to persuade you to believe that Jesus is Christ and to put your faith in him. And so they focus on the things that are, are going to be most uh, helpful in achieving that result. And so the last week of Christ's life, which of course includes his death, and you see all the fulfillments of prophecy and everything coming together in his death and in his resurrection. That's a third of the Gospel of, of Luke. It's half of the Gospel of John. But, uh, so there's a number of series. In this series, what we're going to be focused on uh, are some of the, uh, the revolutionary things that, uh, that Jesus did. We're trying to understand the what and the why. So, to that end, turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, it was read for you. And I'm just going to walk us um, through this. There's a lot that happens in this chapter. Jesus calls the twelve. They become um, disruptive in their... Excuse me, Jesus launches the 12, they become disruptive in the work that they're doing. He feeds 5,000. Uh, he's going to ask them who people say that he is, and, and, and Peter is going to give his big confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, the transfiguration, a lot of stuff happens. We're focused uh, today on just uh, the first handful of verses. So let me walk us through this um, verse by verse. Luke 9, verse 1, when Jesus had called the twelve together. Okay, we'll pause here. (laughs) There's a lot of things, just a quick reminder. Uh, Jesus did not read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Um, If you're familiar with Collins, you know, management organizational guru, he writes this book where he sort of documents what, what helps some companies move from being just good companies to being great companies. And one of the chapters that he has in there is that you've got to get the right people on the bus. Okay. So clearly Jesus did not read that chapter. Uh, because when it comes to the twelve, he, he really uh, assembles this team of misfits and malcontents. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they, don't, um, they were not wise or affluent. They didn't have power. Um, they, they, uh, they didn't get along. Right. They, they don't share a lot in common. Um, They don't share the same values or background or politics. The only thing that they're going to share, really, is Jesus and eventually buying into the mission that Jesus has for them. So, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. So, he gives them power. He commissions them to act in his name. I'm going to say more, uh, not today, but later, about this, the power and the whole supernatural realm and the evil that they're going to be fighting against. Right now, we see that he sends them out. He sends them out, verse 2, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So he sends them out two by two. To announce the kingdom, right? A new set of values, an upside-down ethic. Uh, 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 there's a new king in town. It's Jesus, and he wants to change pretty much everything. Um, he sends them out to proclaim. So there is a proclamation piece here, right? He wants them to proclaim 
about him and what he's doing. But please notice that it goes on to say, and to heal the sick. He sends them out to proclaim and to do something else. And I stress this and because it's really hard, apparently, for people to get the and. There are lots of people, there are lots of churches that tend to focus on the proclamation piece, right? They want to talk about Jesus. They want to talk about who he is. They want to talk about what he did. They want to talk about the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life and salvation. All great stuff. But they don't do the other part. And then there's churches over here or people over here who want to be all about social action. They want to be all about, uh, they want to be all about justice. They want to be all about feeding the hungry. They want to be all about education. Great stuff that we are called to. But they sort of don't get the Jesus part. And, and it's clear, right, that, 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 this, that this plane needs two wings to fly. We don't get to edit the message. It's proclaim the good news and engage in good works. I'm going to say more about this next week when we get to the feeding of the 5,000. I just want to note that it's, it's here, and once you start to clue in, it's pretty much everywhere. So, he sends them out two by two. Verse three, and he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, uh, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You might have thought that the line, shake the dust off your feet, came from your mother. It actually comes from Jesus Uh, and he's saying, you know, find open, receptive places to share uh, what I am doing. And the reason that they are, uh, the reason that they are not to, uh, the reason that they're not to take anything with them is because he wants them to be very dependent upon him, right? That's the key, that's the key thing here. He wants them to be dependent uh, upon God and not to have the ability to have all their needs met. Verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, okay, so this is, when Luke opens, we're talking about Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who is king of the Jews, and the wise men come to him and say, uh, wow, we, you know, we've read the prophecy, we saw the star, we've come here, we want to see who this king is. Um, Herod the Great uh, is the paranoid one who, is, who, when he hears about this, is going to order the slaughter of the innocents. He's going to order all the, all the Jewish baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two to be killed because he's, he's trying to you know, hold on to his power. Herod the Great will have his wife killed. Herod the Great will have his own, some of his own children killed. He doesn't have all of them killed. Um, but he does name all of them Herod, uh, including the girls. So uh, just like George Foreman, everybody's named George. Uh, Herod the Great, all of, his, all of his kids are named Herod. The, the female form of this is Herodias. And uh, this is a pretty massively dysfunctional family. So Herod the Tetrarch, and the Tetrarch just means one-fourth. He's got one-fourth of the kingdom that his dad had. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch is the one who has John the Baptist killed, beheaded. Because John the Baptist spoke out against 
Herod when Herod wanted to marry his brother's wife, who happens also to be his stepsister and his niece. Right? So, not a lot of branches on the family tree, and uh, this, this, guy is, uh, this guy is Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, and, uh, and he's going to start to hear about this work. I'm reading verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead or that Elijah had appeared, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago had come back uh, to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this one I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So, what does all this mean? Right? What, what do we take away from this first section of Luke chapter 9? Well, let me suggest three things as I, as I bring this to a close. Number one, uh, we have an assignment, and it's, it's not small. It's, it's much bigger and grander than most people get. It's not a Sunday assignment. It's an, it's an all-inclusive assignment to be part of God rolling out his kingdom. Now, it's, it's unclear exactly how this rollout is going to occur. And when we go to the book of Revelation, uh, there's more information that makes it clear that at some point, um, Jesus is going to return, and that's going to be the defining moment, and everything is going to get put in place at that point. But we don't know when that is, and what we do know is that between now and then, we are expected to be about our assignment of proclaiming the good news and engaging in good works. That's what's expected of us. And uh, we, are to, we, are to, we are to pray for the coming of Christ. We're to look forward to that day. But we're not to be passive between now and then. Secondly, um, we're to do this together. right? All of this involves uh, the church. So, let me, just, let me just say, the church is those people who are called out by Christ, right? Those people who, who are called by God and were called to live lives as acts of worship in response to Jesus uh, to be his disciples and community for the sake of the world. Now, God has a church, and I just want to I, I be clear. The goal is not the church. The church is not the end, Right? The church is a means to the end. And, and this is God's plan. We are to do this together, but we don't come together to be together. We don't come together to see how many people we can get to come together. Right? We come together in order to be shaped ourselves and to be trained and encouraged so that we will head out to be on assignment because we want to push back the dark. And a lot of people, as I said, a lot of people get this wrong. The church has frequently misunderstood its mission. It's been more informed by culture or by politics or by other forces. And, uh, and when that happens, bad things happen. It tends, uh, it tends to be uh, a smaller assignment. When, when, we, when we take our eyes off Jesus, uh, we, end up, we end up thinking about our rights we end up uh, downsizing our assignment. We end up doing a number of things other than what we have been called 
to do. And that leads me uh, to the third final point here, and that is that uh, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. And I want to encourage you, especially during this series, read the Gospels. doesn't have to be the Gospel of Luke. Just every day, read something out of one of the Gospels. Keep reading the Gospels. We need to be constantly informed and shaped by Jesus and what he did, uh, because it is expansive. It is, it is shocking, and it will remind us that we are to be on mission. Uh, we are to be right, revolutionaries. We are to be part of the biggest, most important revolution of all time. Remarkably, the, the reputation that the church has would be, uh, first of all, to be boring. So I'm not sure how you put revolution and boring together, but somehow we've done it. And we are to be revolutionaries. Uh, let's be part of this revolution for God and revolution for good where others are going to win. Um, hang on, more to come. That's the series. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray for your work in this world. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be part of seeing that happen. We want to be part of your agenda. Uh, we want to be on assignment. We want to understand it more clearly. We want to understand what acts of revolution look like in this love-filled, grace-filled, mercifully, merciful-filled uh, assignment that we've been given uh, to proclaim the good news and engage in good work. So guide us to that end. Help us to see places where we could serve, uh, where your work would be advanced. And we pray all this for Christ's glory, and we pray it in his name. Amen.